Good morning, Cross Point. In case some of you don't know who I am, because I'm obviously not Ben, and I'm obviously not Scott. My name is Morris Bean, and I'm one of the elders here at Cross Point. We welcome you here this morning. Um, it's a joy to be here this week of Christmas. We're going to begin this morning with a time of prayer. First of all, we're going to be praying for another, another fellowship here in town, Park Street Baptist Church. Johnny Hales is the pastor there and his wife, Ruth Ann. We're going to be praying for them. We're also going to be praying for the dispersed peoples from North Africa and Middle East. I went on the IMB website this week to see what the prayer log was that was going on. And this morning, people all over the world with IMB are praying for this displaced people. One of the individuals that they spoke of, his name is Sam. Sam is not a believer, but he's very interested in hearing. And they have little, um, I don't know if it's a little CD player, an MP3 player, or something that they give out to the, to the people in the in, in, uh, Middle East. And Sam's got one of those, and he's hearing the gospel. So we're going to be praying specifically for Sam. They didn't have a picture of Sam, or else we would have posted it up there. So God knows who Sam is, so we're going to be praying for him. Then we're going to be praying for our time together this morning in the Word that we hear truth applied from the Holy Spirit to our ears and to our hearts. So if you would join me in prayer. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this time. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. And it's my prayer, Father, this morning that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray this morning for... Uh, Park Street Baptist Church and for Johnny Hales, the pastor, and his wife, Ruth Ann, that their week, this week, has been rich in preparing for the word this morning, that their marriage has been enriched. Father, that they have drawn closer to you and closer to one another, that you would continue to bless them and bless their ministry in the middle to north part of Greenville. Father, may they hear the truth of your word rightly divided this morning from the pulpit. And that they would then be able to take that truth and go into the community to continue to spread your word. Father, I also pray this morning for the nations as we pray together with others for North Africa and the Middle East. Primarily, they're doing medical projects in a forcibly displaced persons camp. One of the individuals mentioned is the, is, has the name Sam. Father, I pray for Sam this morning that as he hears your word on this electronic device, that it would soften his heart, that the Holy Spirit would quicken his heart, and that he would be led to the truth of your word. And as a result of their efforts, Father, that he would be one of your children. He would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and restored relationship with you. Then he could take that to his family and then the world around him. Father, I also pray this morning for our time together that, again, we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that the word we hear would not be my words, but your words, that we would then be able to apply that truth to our lives and to those around us. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Now, as we continue to read through and study through the book of Zechariah for Advent, we've heard about the visions of Zechariah in the first six chapters. 
We heard about the branch two weeks ago in chapter 6. Last week we heard the first of the two burdens in the book of Zechariah. And then this morning we're going to hear the second, I'm sorry, the first of the two burdens in that we need a good shepherd. And the Bible rightly points out that Jesus is that good shepherd. Then this week, we're going to continue with the second burden, and it's the great sacrifice of the good shepherd. Now, Ben pointed out last week that sheep do have a level of intelligence, because after all, God created sheep, and they do what sheep do. So there is that level of intelligence. But I got to tell you, I worked with sheep for several years when I was in high school. I saw a lot more of the messes than I saw of, in, of, of evidence of intelligence. For example, did you know that you cannot drive sheep? You, know, you can drive cattle. You can drive just about anything else except cats. But sheep particularly, if you get behind sheep and try to push them where you want them to go, they're going to go in circles. Sheep have to be led. Sheep have to have a shepherd. That's, why, that's what's necessary to move them from one place to another. The shepherd has to go before them. And we see that in Scripture. Now this morning we're going to be reading and focusing on two primary verses. Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9. You can go ahead and start turning there because I'm going to read that in a minute. Then we're also going to be looking at Matthew 26, 31. So you can bookmark that as well. But to be honest, there's going to be a lot more verses than that. And rather than taking time for y'all to look them up, y'all can do the sword drill thing that we did when we were kids in the Baptist church, you know, and that's fine. But our media team is going to have the verses up here on the wall behind me. So let me just, let me just ask you to take your ease in that and just read the verses as they're put up on the wall. They've done a good job already. Uh, just getting them together. To give you an idea of where we're going to go this morning, there's going to be two major points. First, we're going to be examining the sacrifice made by the good shepherd. Secondly, we're going to be looking at the statement that God made that there is going to be a scattering because of this sacrifice of the good shepherd. Then we're going to move to one application point. So read with me this morning, Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. So the first thing we have to consider this morning, who is the shepherd? Now we already have a clue from from Ben's sermon last week. And I'm not going I'm, I'm to move away from that. But I want to show you in this passage 
there is an absolute clue from God of who this shepherd is. In verse 7, God reveals a clue about the shepherd. And he says, it's the one who stands next to me. Now this phrase, the one who stands next to me, is referring not only to someone standing, but standing right next to. I mean like right here. And not just standing, but standing with equal power. Standing with equal status. That being said, it can only be the divine human Messiah, Jesus. Spoken of in John 1, 1 through, 1 through 3, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the good shepherd. Don't ever forget that. Jesus himself spoke of himself in that way. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So how did Jesus get here? How was his first arrival accomplished? It's not as most would expect. Most would expect a king would be born in a palace. We know that Jesus was born in a stable. We would expect him to be surrounded by scholars and wise men and teachers who would groom him in the kingly ways. But Jesus grew up the son of a carpenter in Nazareth. Not one of the favorite places, as we've heard spoken of so many times. We would also expect Jesus to surround himself with men of stature. Now, a good friend of mine said, Morris, he said, it's my goal to surround myself with men of wisdom. Standing closer to God than I am to draw me close. That's kind of what we would expect about Jesus. Uh, but who did he surround himself with? Ordinary men, much like us. Knuckleheads from fishing boats. Okay. Tax gatherers. Men of the streets. Men of the countryside. He started his ministry at age 30. Probably due to the fact that as the oldest son... He was expected to stay in his father's business until his father died. That was Jewish custom. And then if, when his father died, he was then free to pursue another, another pathway for his life. But until that time, he stayed in his father's business. So I believe that Jesus stayed in the carpenter shop until he was 30. It's not mentioned because it's pretty typical of Jewish tradition when someone dies you don't speak of them again so Joseph was never spoken of again after that that's why I think that's probably what happened Jesus was here for one purpose 
to glorify the Father through his life, through his actions, and through his sacrifice. His obedience to the Father, even to the point of death, was his goal. That was his purpose. More than that. He became sin for us so that we could have a way of a restored relationship with the Father. And dominion of the earth, over the earth would be returned to mankind because it was given up by Adam and Eve in their original sin in the Garden of Eden. There's two absolutes that stand out here. First, we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who? All. A few of us? All. The untouchables? All have sinned. The second absolute that stands out here is that our sin has earned us a wage. In Romans 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin has earned us a wage. And it's death. And it's a complete, utter separation from God. That's what our wage is. But we have a good shepherd. And Jesus offered himself while here on earth. The good shepherd put himself between the one who would destroy the sheep and the sheep. And, and, and I agree with what, what's, I always agree with what's said here in the pulpit. That's the beauty of being here at Crosspoint. Um, truth is mentioned. Truth is taught. But I grew up believing something about two clicks off of plum. Okay. That the price was paid to Satan. Satan was the one that wants to destroy us. While he does want to destroy us, in this context, the one who put, the one who, the good shepherd put himself between us and the Father. Because of our sin, we were set to be destroyed. The wages of our sin is death. And that was God's decision so Jesus put himself between us and not Satan but the father you know I love the story that Ben tells of of you know if you're you're stuck in asphalt in the in the pavement and you look up and there's a truck bearing down on you and that being stuck in the pavement is the consequence of your sin and the one driving the truck to run over you is the father and Jesus steps out and, and takes us into a safe place. That's what Jesus did. Jesus endured the cross. Crucifixion was historically the most painful way to die that the Roman government had. Now, I'm not going to go into all the gruesome details this morning. <laughs> 
because it's bad. But I want to hit some highlights. First of all, Jesus was physically exhausted after having not slept for over 24 hours. He was, he was exhausted. Secondly, he was scourged. Again, I, I grew up believing that he received 39 lashes. No. He was scourged. That means he was beaten until he was just maybe a half a breath away from dying. However many lashes that took. Third, he carried the cross, the means of execution, to Golgotha, up the Via Della Rosa. And we know the basic path that is, and it's just under a half a mile. And that doesn't sound like much. I mean, how many of us here have walked half a mile and really not had any ill effects? It used to be easier for me than it is now, but you know, I still work on it. But consider what Jesus had just experienced prior to this walk and prior to carrying that cross. Next, he was nailed to the cross by his hands and his feet. His shoulders were dislocated. He suffocated because he could not exhale properly. This was a sacrifice indeed. But as bad as that is, that wasn't the real sacrifice. It wasn't the ultimate sacrifice. It was bad, yeah. But he endured much more than that. He endured the most torturous event of taking the sin of all of God's chosen, you and me, on himself. To the point that the father even turned his face away from the son. That was the torturous part of the crucifixion of that death. You see, he felt the penalty. He felt the death, that separation from the father for every single sin I have ever committed and I ever will commit. And the same for every one of you here who are God's chosen. Every single sin. What we like to classify the big ones and the little ones. There, are, there is no such thing. It's sin. But he felt that crushing blow of every one of those sins for every one of God's chosen. That goes beyond my imagination. I can't even begin to try to wrap my brain around what that was. In Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, Labama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned away from the Son for the first time in Eternity past. And will never happen again in eternity future. 
Now, knowing all that this was going to happen, I'm going to do a little flashback here. Knowing that all of this was going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, prior to his arrest, Jesus was praying, and he was in such agony over what was about to happen that he was sweating drops of blood. The stress was so bad that the capillaries in the forehead were breaking and leaking into the sweat glands and blood was coming out of his forehead. In that agony, he asked that the Father take the cup of bitterness away from him. In Luke 22, verses 42 through 44, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I don't believe that Jesus was asking for a change of plan. I don't believe he was asking for the crucifixion to be taken away. Because Jesus knew that was absolutely necessary to glorify the Father and to bring us into right relationship with the Father. It was needed. And that plan was decided upon long before God spoke creation into existence. See, it was necessary. And yet, God did take away the agony that Jesus was feeling. Because we don't know how many minutes later, but just a few minutes later, when the soldiers came and Judas came to arrest Jesus, agony was gone. He was at complete peace. And he spoke to his accusers. And he spoke through the trials. He was at peace. Because God had removed the agony that he was feeling. He still knew what he was going through. But the personal agony, the emotions that he was going through was taken from God. And replaced with peace. Because Jesus knew that this was going to work. There was no doubt in his mind. He knew that this was necessary. It was the peace of the father to the shepherd who was about to be struck with a sword. The striking of the sword was the complete act of crucifixion. And Jesus becoming sin and paying that price for the redemption of our sins. First to glorify the father... Secondly, to help to give us the pathway to be reconciled to the Father. Jesus took the sentence of all of us. That death, that separation from the Father. While in our thinking it was momentary, he felt the agony, the pain, the suffering of being separated from the Father for the first time in all eternity. That is the great sacrifice. That is the great sacrifice that the Good Shepherd made for you and for me. 
I want that point to sink in. If I had a recliner, I might sit back for a minute. <laughs> but let that truth sink in. That was what Jesus did. Okay. The second point of this passage from Zechariah is that the, sheep's gonna be, the sheep will be scattered. The Old Testament has a number of passages that talk about sheep and about the shepherd, about good shepherds and about bad shepherds. When the shepherd leaves or is taken away, the picture given by, by Scripture is that the sheep scatter. They scatter to the hills, having no shepherd to lead, lead them. Remember what I said in the beginning. You can't drive sheep. You know, they have to be led. And sheep do not know how to find another pasture if the one that they've eaten is down to the dirt. And they do. They need a shepherd to lead them to green pastures. We see that, those points in Psalm 23. Typically without the shepherd, the sheep get into trouble. And they're exposed to the predators that would destroy them. Again, in Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now we have to ask the question, who is the sheep? We know who the shepherd is, but who is the sheep? Some scholars believe that the sheep refer to the Jews of the time and they find the scattering synonymous with the dispersion of the Jews after the fall of Jerusalem. However, please note in this next passage, Jesus gives us another clue and he told the Jewish hearers in the temple that day, in John 10, you're not my sheep. In John 10 verses 25 to 26, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. So, who are the sheep? The second and a smaller part of the group to be identified as the scattered sheep come from Jesus' own words again. When Jesus told his disciples in John 16 that they would be scattered. He was talking very specifically to his disciples. In John 16, 32 it says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So the disciples were the little flock and represented the New Testament Israel. Those who were called by God. And Jesus quoted Zechariah as recorded in Matthew 26, 31. Second passage I told you we were going to look at. Matthew 26, 31. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So once again, Jesus points to himself and says that he is the good shepherd and that he will be struck down 
and that the sheep will be scattered. Now the scattering of the disciples after Jesus' crucifixion does not exhaust the picture of this scattering. In the persecution after Stephen was martyred, the first century followers of Christ, Christians, the church, the flock of sheep, was scattered. In Acts 8, 1, and Saul approved his execution, that is, Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. James and Peter also spoke of this scattering of the church. In James 1, 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So he was addressing those who had been scattered in that first century church. 1 Peter 1, 1, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So once again, God speaks through Peter about the dispersion and the elect exiles. And it continues today. We still are being dispersed. For some, there is even another troubling truth revealed in this passage in Zechariah 13. The last part of verse 7 says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Now, what God is revealing in this passage is that he will allow the church to go through some seriously troubling times through trials and through testing. He will turn his hand against the church, not his punishment. Hear that again. He will turn his hand against the church, not as punishment, but as a refining refining. He points out in verse 9 that he is to refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. Now when precious metals are refined, they're melted. And in that liquid state, the dross or the slag, the impurities are flushed out of the, out of the liquid. I melt lead and pour lead bullets from my black powder weapons. And when I melt lead, it turns to a mirror image shiny liquid. I mean, it is, it is a pure silver. And I take that melting pot and I tap it. And immediately, the slag comes to the surface. And it's now just 
dirty. I mean, it, it's no longer that shiny silver. The impurities have come to the surface. And I've got a long-handled spoon because <laughs> it's hot. And I'll take the slag off the top of that melted lead, dispose of it, and it's nice and shiny again. And guess what? I pick up the pot and I tap it again. And again, the surface is covered with dross, with more impurities. I clean that off. Each time I do that, more slag comes out. More impurities come out. So like lead, God tests us. He lets us go through trials so that the impurities of our life can be removed and that we will be much more effective to him and our kingdom work. When God refines us, it is his purpose to purify us, not to punish. God says in that passage that two-thirds will be struck down. That indicates a serious time of persecution. And it was in the first century church. God does reveal that he will leave a remnant. One third shall be left alive. The testing is not over. God reveals that he will also continue to refine us. So today, we are not immune to persecution. Yes, we are a blessed people in this country. We don't have to fear that someone's going to come breaking through the door and arrest, persecute, hang, whatever us because of our belief in, in God and our salvation through Jesus Christ and our preaching of the word. I stand here today not afraid. Okay. Because of who God is and because of the environment we live in. Is it going to be that way forever? Probably not. But we can look forward to this because of what God's, what Jesus himself said in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now, in this passage, the phrase, keep your words, can be kind of interesting. But it literally refers to our opposition, hearing what we say regarding Jesus and remember them and use those words against us. Bottom line, we are going to be persecuted. We will. Jesus promised that. Why would we expect anything else? You may be thinking about now. <laughs> Morris, I thought this was an Advent sermon. Where's the good news? Where, where's the little baby in the manger? He's, he was there. The manger's empty. We know he was there.
most of what we've heard this morning is pretty grim. Okay, it is. So, what's the good news? So now we come to the application. Or one point of application. In Matthew 26, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So our Savior is not in the tomb. The tomb is empty. Folks, that's the good news. That's the good news. And he goes before us even now. As we're walking. Why did God allow such a scattering of the sheep? I said earlier, it wasn't to punish the church. But it was for one reason. To spread the good news of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was spread because of the scattering. Because when the sheep scattered, they carried the good news with them. For example, when Paul, when he was arrested in Rome, and he was guarded by the Praetorian Guard, which were the elite guards, and he was chained to a guard all the time, 24-7. What did Paul do? He saw that as a prime opportunity to share the gospel. He had a captive audience. Yeah, he was chained up and he was in prison, but so was that guard. And so Paul shared the gospel with that guard. As a result of that, the guard trusted Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And the guard took the truth to his family and they trusted Jesus that guard very probably, by the nature of who the Praetorian guard were, probably commanded an army at some point, and as he went to different parts of the world, he didn't go just as a Roman soldier, he went as a soldier of God, and he carried the gospel to our ancestors. See, the scattering of the church was to spread the good news of the gospel to all of the known world. Jesus spoke to us of the new covenant that comes through Jesus. God spoke to us of the new covenant that comes through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, in Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and they shall be my people. The great sacrifice made by the good shepherd and the refining that we go through represents the joy and the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus and in this new covenant. This is our good news. This is the outcome that God had intended from the very beginning. He is our God. 
we are his people. He is our God. And we are his people. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for this great sacrifice. We thank you for this time of Advent. We thank you for this long-awaited coming of the Messiah so that we would know you, so that in our persecution and in our being scattered, we would present the gospel to the known world to reach the nations for you. Father, I thank you for this time this morning, and I thank you for this truth of who the good shepherd is and for what his purpose is for us. Thank you, Father, that you are our God and that we are your people.